Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this Sunday. Thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for this day that we can live, we can breathe, we can come here to worship you. Father, I pray that as we come today, may we sit at your feet, may we hear your voice, may your spirit. We just want to give you this time, Lord God. May you teach us and speak to us, Lord. We ask this, Jesus. In your name. I feel really far. Can I move up a little bit? Or actually, no, you know, I, I won't do it for the camera's sake. All right. I just feel like really distant. You're good. Okay. Right. I'm going to move about right here. Made any difference whatsoever? Psychologically, it made a difference for me. Um, I know you guys had some, uh, you. You said hi to somebody. I want you to turn to someone and say, what do you want from me? So go ahead, turn around to someone and say, what do you want from me? All right. It might it might lose some of its effect with the on. We can kind of hide things, but how did it feel when you said it? How many of you, when you said, what do you want from me? How do you kind of put a little bit of attitude in that? <laughs> how many of you, it's been a while since you said that to somebody? How many of you, it's been like hours since you said that to somebody? <laughs> What emotions or thoughts get stirred up when you ask that? I'm off. The general thought behind that, when someone asks that, what do you want from me? What are they really asking? What are they saying? Is the emotion usually a positive one when they ask that? <laughs> Like, definitely not. Sometimes the line that follows, what do you want from me, is usually something like, leave me alone, right? What do you want from me? Leave me alone. Now turn to, you could turn to the same person, someone totally different, and ask them, what do you need from me? Now, I know some of you are sitting with family, so asking kids to say that to the parents or the parents say that to the kids, that could be a little risky for a Sunday morning, right? But did that question feel or sound a little different from the first one? What do you want from me to what do you need from me? Where's the focus on those two questions? On the first one, when you're asking that, where's the focus? What are you demanding from me? Right? What am I needing to give you now? But when you ask, what do you need from me? Where does the focus go? It goes to that person. Their needs, right? What's another way to ask that question? We may hear this every time we drive up in Chick-fil-A. What do they ask you? How can I help you? Right? Perspectives can truly change a question or a simple phrase, right? 
Changing one word can completely alter the intention. It can change the mood or the feelings. Perhaps, I don't know if you asked those questions. I'm sure none of you asked that with attitude, but maybe you did. Perhaps asking those two questions, because you have such a kind heart, when you ask, what do you want from me, or, or what do you need from me, it was all the same. It was all positives, right? I'm sure that's everybody here. Or maybe not. But I would guess we all know the difference between those questions. When someone asks you, what do you want from me? Or if they ask you, what do you need from me? For many, uh, church has morphed into kind of a second job, huh? Can any of you attest to that? It seems like church has become a second job. Church demands your time. It demands your resources. It demands your money. demands your heart. How many of us know the feeling when you're at church and you see a church leader approaching? And you could kind of tell by the look on their face or the way they say hello or greet you, you know what's coming. What's coming next? You know the feeling when they're going to ask you something because they want something from you. Can you volunteer for something? Can you give somewhere? Can you do something? And you know that feeling of you're looking around and saying, where's my out? Let me jump into a conversation here. Or, oh, you know what? Someone's calling me. Not really, but I need to pretend someone's calling me. We all, a lot of us may know that feeling that church has become that place where we're demanded of. We're busy. Maybe you come to church and you just want to be left alone. Or maybe you come to church expecting church to meet all your needs. Whatever mindset we come to church with, can we shift from what do I have to do for you to how can I bless you? We're moving into the third foundational principle we started back in April. And we're going to look at edifying fellowship. A foundational principle for us to have as a church and and in our personal lives. Edifying fellowship. And before we get into the message, I want to talk about fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Fellowship is kind of one of those Christianese words, isn't it? It's kind of one of those words that you don't hear people talking about outside of church. When you're in church, we throw these words that we all know, right? Fellowship. Oh, we're going to have fellowship together. But when you go outside of church, do you you hear anyone ever use the word fellowship? Right? I think it's pretty rare. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone use the word fellowship outside of church, unless you're watching Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? When you think of fellowship, what do you think of? Food? Amen. Games? Maybe. Coffee? Right? We put coffee out for fellowship conversations afterwards, we're talking to each other. Some of those words, those are things that come to mind when we think of fellowship. But when we use the word fellowship, we're referencing a Greek word, koinonia. And if you have your, your app, you have your bulletin on your phone, you can look down there. What does koinonia mean? What does fellowship mean? What are we referring to? That word means having in common a partnership, sharing which one has in anything, an association, 
refers to community, joint participation. It can also refer to a collection, a contribution. And you look at Scripture in the New Testament, the word fellowship or koinonia is used in several different contexts. It's used in describing the contributions and support to fellow believers in need. One group of believers gave koinonia. They gave towards another group of believers who were in need. Okay, so it can refer to a contribution or support. It's also associated with our relationship with God. We have fellowship with God. Specifically, we have fellowship with Jesus. We have fellowship in his sufferings. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is a full term. It's also used to describe the quality found in the community of believers. The believers were known to have koinonia. They have this fellowship. It described their gathering together. So whatever context we see in Scripture or in the New Testament, that word fellowship, some commonalities of each context suggest that there's an intimate sharing involved. A joint participation within a context of some relationship, some relationship that unites them. Okay? So as we have koinonia with God, we have koinonia, we have fellowship with each other. Okay? We have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with each other. So when we refer to fellowship in a church context, we're not simply referring to eating some food together. Right, Just because we break up some, some pizza or some donuts out there, we gather together eating, we're saying, oh, we're having fellowship. Not necessarily. It's not just about eating together. Just because we eat together or we converse, we're having conversation afterwards, it doesn't mean we're having meaningful fellowship. We all know what that feels like, right? Like obligatory conversations? that we, we tend to have. Hey, hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, great, you know. So how's work? Oh, good, good. How's your week? Oh, good, great, yeah. Good school? Oh, yeah, school's good. Okay, see you next week. Okay, see you next week, right? And that's our fellowship time. Do we have meaningful fellowship? Do we have edifying fellowship? Because our fellowship with each other will reflect our fellowship with God. If we're having meaningful fellowship with God, we should have meaningful fellowship with each other. And these next few weeks, as we continue to look at the rest of Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at some passages that deal with what this looks like, how we ought to be with one another. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter, or Luke, I don't know why I said Luke. Romans chapter 12. I want us to get a, in context the first three verses that we've been looking at. Because I want us to understand the flow of these first three verses. You all should have the first two verses memorized by now. How many of you memorized Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2? All right, we've been covering this for like over a month. So we should have these verses memorized. Verse 1 through 3, let's, let's go over this together. It says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, what? Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not, what? 
Be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So let's get these first three verses in context and connected together. As believers in Christ, we present ourselves as what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. As believers in Christ, we know that what he done, he's done for us. Then as we approach God, we know that he has created us and made us new. Holy, acceptable to God. So as we present ourselves, we present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That's our spiritual act of worship. How we live our life is an offering to God. And as we offer ourselves up to God, we are to what? No longer what? Pattern ourselves after the world, right? Outside of Christ, what we do, we pattern ourselves after different people, different styles, all these things. But it says, don't conform to the world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renovation of your mind. So we've been talking, we talked about that previously for a couple weeks. Letting God's word renovate, change our minds so that we may be transformed. So we see this, this flow. But then we get to verse 3. Paul says, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. The reason why we spent so much time in those first two verses is because we need to understand, we need verse, the first two verses to be able to do the rest of the chapter. Because of the rest of the chapter, if, if we don't devote our, our lives to God, our worship to God, and if we don't allow him to transform our thinking, our minds, we're not going to be able to consistently do or genuinely do the rest of this chapter. Because look what Paul's saying, every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. What is Paul saying? Don't esteem yourself higher than you ought to think of yourself. Slow your roll. Don't think, don't just think of yourself any above higher than you ought to. You need to settle down a bit. Some people's heads are up in the clouds, but they can't see other people. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's easy for us to think highly of ourselves more than we should. And this is not just a young thing. As you get older, does that get easier? No. Well, it gets easier to do it. I mean, whether regardless of age, it's easier for us to think ourselves higher or more than we ought to think. Because see, when we esteem others or we esteem ourselves, what do we often do when we esteem ourselves? We're usually doing it at the expense of other people. If we think higher of ourselves, we often are lowering other people. We end up being those people who kind of cut in line in, in grocery stores. Have you ever seen those people? I was accidentally one of those people. I was at the market. I was in a rush. I got my items. I got about, I don't know, my five things in my hands. I was looking around, and there was like, didn't seem to be any line. So I went straight to the first check cashier, and I walked right up. But then I looked to my right, and what did I see? 
This is pandemic supermarkets. There was a line to get to the, to the cash register. And I looked, I was already in the, like, at the belt. And I looked over, and I saw this guy. He was ticked off. He's like, hello? I was like, I was so embarrassed. Like, oh, man. I said, I'm sorry. But she was already getting my, my stuff. It's like, oh, what do I do? I felt, I was like, oh, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that I, I can't stand when people do. They go and they just push way through. Say, look, I need to get to my stuff. I need to get to the register. My time is a little more important than yours sometimes, right? We feel that way. See, that's what happens sometimes. We have the tendency to esteem ourselves, but often it's at the expense of other people. Why does Paul warn about this? Well, let's get this in context a bit. Go to the previous chapter in chapter 11. See, in context, what Paul is warning against, he's talking to Gentile believers here. These are a Gentile audience who has come to faith in Christ. And Paul explains in chapter 11 in the previous chapters that through the transgression of rebellion and unbelief and unfaithfulness, of Israel, the gospel came to the Gentiles. Their unbelief brought opportunity of salvation to the Gentiles. And Paul's warning the Gentile believers not to let this become an opportunity of boasting. Don't forget that their faith was made possible by the faith of the Jewish faithful. We're going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 11 of Romans. You can read along with me. So so we get this context a bit. For if their rejection, there being the Jews or Israel, be re- their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also, and if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Are you catching the analogy here? Paul's using the analogy of like a tree. And where the Gentiles were once not in, they're grafted in. But an un- the unbelieving Israel was broken off so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. Okay, so that's the picture we see here. So Paul says, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root. Verse 20, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Verse 25. For, if I, do not want, or for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved. I'm going to jump to verse 30. For just as you were once... Once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. 
So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. So Paul gives three warnings as he's explaining this to the Gentiles. Look, you became believers through the opportunity of unbelief. Right? Israel became They were unbelieving, they were unfaithful, and they gave opportunity for these Gentile believers to come into covenant with God. But Paul gives these three warnings here. One, not to be arrogant. Don't glory against. Don't exalt yourself over anybody. Don't boast of yourself at the expense of another person's harm. Do not be conceited. In other words, think modestly of yourself. Don't let your one's own self-opinion exceed the bounds of modesty. The third thing he warns against, lest you be wise in your own estimation. He says, don't try to be wise in your own estimation. What you think ought to be. What is Paul warning these Gentile believers? Don't let your salvation, your gift of grace, be a reason to boast over somebody else. Don't let your faith in Christ, the grace that you have received and you've been given, justify holding it over on somebody else. Don't think that you are better than the unbeliever. Paul warns them, the Lord hasn't forgotten Israel. Yes, their unbelief gave opportunity for the Gentiles to come to faith, but God has not forsaken Israel. He will bring them back into covenant. You may think, well, Pastor Mike, that's kind of interesting. What does this have to do with us? Go back to verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So similarly to the previous chapter, Paul again warns three, three times. A similar warning to them. Don't think of yourself higher than you ought to. Don't view yourself as more important than the other person. Use sound judgment, use your sound mind as to how you see yourself in relation to other people. Why is this important? Because we need to grasp this because we're approaching the next part of this chapter that may be the more difficult, more uncomfortable part of this series. Because, you know, previously we've been talking about our relationship with God, right? How we worship God, how we devote our lives to God. I think many of us can probably attest to we can hide that pretty well. How we're doing with God, right? We can come to church, we can do the church thing, we can go off during the week, and we, maybe none of us here would know how each other's spiritual lives or relationship with God may be. But we can't hide or fake for long how we are with other people. Right? At some point in time, we realize what is just routine and what is real when it comes to how we are with other people. So this next few weeks may be a little more uncomfortable than the previous ones because we're going to be challenged to how we are, how we value, how we see each other. And not just here, but when we go out. Whether it's unbelievers 
or fellow believers in Christ. And so Paul's warning, look, get your minds right. Look, you don't think of yourselves better than those who are unbelievers. But he checks yourself here. He says, look, don't let your salvation justify thinking of yourself higher than anybody else, whether it's unbeliever or believer. See, sometimes Christians, we can have a tendency to think that, well, now that we're saved, we have the grace of God, we've been going to church, we have all these things, we're so blessed by God. It can be easy for us to look down on the unbelieving world, to point fingers and say, man, I can't believe that. Can you believe they would do something like that? I could never do something like that. Right? We looked at the story weeks ago about Israel. Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and they forgot about God just a matter of a month. When you read that story, it's like, man, I can't believe. How, what are the, what's wrong with those Israelites? They saw all those miracles and yet they're so quick to disobey God. Man, if I was them, that wouldn't be me. We have to be careful, especially to the unbelieving world. Because if you think about it, I think about it myself. I, I thought about this recently. I could have very well been born in North Korea. My parents escaped just as the war was breaking. My dad fought for the U.S. Army, fought in the war. My dad immigrated. My mom's family, all but one sister, managed to escape. But very easily could have been my mom who didn't make it over. I very well could have been in North Korea. I very well could have grown up believing that this dictator was a god. Right? How many of us can say similar things? Very easily, we could be the atheist, the agnostic, the backslidden, struggling believer. That could have been any of us. But so many times we hold our faith as like, well, you know, we're above that. It's quite easy. It can even be reflex for us to think, that we have God all figured out. Sometimes we assume who ought to be saved and who not. Right? Have you ever done that? Seen somebody and said, man, that person needs Jesus, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Boy, that person can't be reached by God. Look at them. Look what they've done. We can easily get into that mode. We can easily look at people in church I say, man, they've been to church how many years now? And they're not serving, they're not helping, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Look what I'm doing every week. We can easily rely on our wisdom. We think we have it all figured out, how one should exercise their faith, right? Well, I know what I'm doing every week, but look at this person. I can tell they're struggling. I could tell this drunk because they're always late for church or they've never served or all these kind of things. See, we can easily fall into these things, these mental traps. But what if we approach how we value each other differently? What can happen when we approach situations with the perspective of, you know what, I'm here for you. I'm here at church or I'm here at this fellowship, 
I'm here at this gathering, or maybe even extends into your family, extends into your workplace, in your schools, whatever it is, and you approach it with the mentality of, I'm here for this person, for you. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with coming to church and thinking, or, another, or having needs, right? How many of us have gone to church? You've been really needing church for something. You came to church hoping you can have some encouragement. Someone to come and, and, and come alongside and pray for you. Right? We've all, I think, had that at time. And that's, that's good. That's, that's, that's right. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having people at church to, to seek them for help as you have needs. But we need to keep our minds in check. We need to keep our own view of ourselves in check. Three verses, and as we start to close, I want to share with you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. James writes in chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Lastly, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who's Paul talking to? Is he talking to the unbelieving world? No. He's talking to the believers. He's talking to the church. And notice the attention to having a mind of what? Humility. Avoid selfishness. Avoid selfish ambition. We're to have an attitude that regards others more important than ourselves. When we come to church... We're not just looking for our own interests. But can we come to church looking at the interests of others? I'm going to close with these two ideas for us to marinate on. The first thing, value people from a place of humility. Can we value people from a place of humility? We're not looking down at the unbeliever regardless of what their quote-unquote sin may be, regardless of what their lifestyle may be, regardless of the life choices they may have had, can we look at them with humility? Don't see other believers as lesser than yourself. How you view another believer in Christ, regardless of where they are in their faith, whether they're a new believer or they're a struggling, lifelong believer. Can we view each other with humility? 
And the second thing for us to think about, find opportunities to exercise your faith in ways to bless others. Wherever you are in your faith, whether you just have little faith, you just came to the Lord, or you don't know a whole lot about the Bible, you just have some belief that Jesus did what he did, said what he said, or whether you've been studying the Bible, you have your, your, your degree, or you've been, you have your own Bible, wherever you are in that spectrum, can you exercise your faith in ways to bless others instead of keeping all that information to yourself? I don't care if you're in junior high or elementary school or you're the parent of those kids or they're your grandparents or wherever it is. If you look around this church, can you see somebody on a weekly basis that you may, have, you may not find any common interest in? You may feel like you may not get anything from this person but you can engage with them and say, you know what? You don't have to say these words. How, how, what do you need? How can I bless you? Right? I'm not asking you to do that, right? You can if you want. I don't know. It might work. But can you see other people and value them regardless whether you see similarities, same age, social class, what they wear, can you be a blessing to them? In the next few weeks, we're going to explore the rest of the chapter, and I guarantee we will finish chapter 12 eventually. But it's going to get into very specific things, and it's going to challenge us. Before we could ever try those things, we have to keep ourselves in perspective. Not to think ourselves better than we ought, that we have some superpower of service, we're a talented speaker, Worship leader, server, usher, whatever it is. But like, you know what, Lord? Help me to come here for somebody else. To be a blessing to somebody else. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, we just thank you that, Lord, you bring us into fellowship with you. That we may be able to have meaningful edifying fellowship with each other. But Lord, help us in our mindset. Help us to view others differently. Guard our hearts from being conceited, self-centered, seeking our own. Help us to be others-minded, to want to serve one another value each other. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you for this exhortation and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.